Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. We are so excited to have MS4 Juaniza Muhiz back with us to share a topic related to her future specialty of OBGYN. Today's episode will review various gynecological malignancies. Hope you enjoy. Hey, future doctors. Thanks for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Winiza Muhiz, and I'm a student at Drexel College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. I'm a fourth-year medical student in Philadelphia going into OBGYN. Today, we'll be covering some reproductive topics, including molar pregnancies, ovarian tumors, and other gynecological malignancies. Say you have a 41-year-old female with history of irregular, increasing, heavy vaginal bleeding. She's having hot flashes, night sweats, palpitations. On by manual exam, you see an enlarged uterus, so you do an ultrasound, which shows an enlarged uterus filled with a homogeneous mass composed of small cystic structures. On labs, the beta HCG is elevated. What would this be? This is most likely a hydratiform mole. The pathophysiology of hydratiform moles are that they are non-viable abnormal gestations with hypertrophic and hydropic placental trophoblastic villi. Essentially, somebody is going to present with abnormal uterine bleeding with hydropic tissue. They'll have their uterine enlarged, abnormal for gestational age, and an abnormally highly elevated beta-HCG. They can also have theca-luteal ovarian cysts or bilateral ovarian masses that are caused from the ovarian hyperstimulation by the trophoblastic disease. They'll commonly have hyperemesis gravidarum, or they can also have preeclampsia with severe features. There are two main types of moles. There is a complete mole, which is usually an empty ovum fertilized by two sperm, so you have duplicated male chromosomes. There's also a partial mole, which is usually a normal ovum fertilized by two sperms, so you have three sets of chromosomes. A complete mole might be 46XX or XY. A partial mole might be 69XXX, 69XXY, or 69XYY. Some risk factors for a molar pregnancy are advanced maternal age, hydratiform moles, or a vitamin A deficiency. It's diagnosed by a snowstorm appearance on ultrasound and high serum beta-HCG. Treatment is dilation and keratage, serial beta-HCGs post-evaluation, and contraception for at least six months. Say you have a 29-year-old female who comes in with chest pain and dyspnea. Three months ago, she had a normal spontaneous vaginal delivery. Her most recent bleeding episode was five days ago. On chest x-ray, you see bilateral infiltrates in various sizes. What might this be? So now you would be thinking about choriocarcinoma, and what would your test of choice be? So the test of choice for choriocarcinoma is your beta-HCG. A choriocarcinoma is a malignancy from placental trophoblastic tissue. Some risk factors would be advanced maternal age, prior complete hydratiform moles, or it can also occur after a normal pregnancy. It usually presents with amenorrhea, abnormal uterine bleeding, pelvic pain and pressure, or symptoms from the metastasis, most commonly in the lung. Your treatment would be chemotherapy. Say an 8-year-old girl is brought in due to early breast development, vaginal spotting, 
On physical exam, you palpate a large right adnexal mass. What would you be thinking about? So this girl might have a granulosa cell tumor. A granulosa cell tumor has the tumor markers of estradiol and inhibin um, and can present with precocious puberty in children. In adults, it presents with breast tenderness, abnormal uterine bleeding, or postmenopausal bleeding. On pathology, you would see call exner bodies or cells in a rosette pattern. The management would be an endometrial biopsy, especially in adults, just to rule out endometrial cancer, and then surgery to stage the tumor. Now say you have a 56-year-old woman who comes in complaining of right-sided pelvic pain and bloating. What would you be thinking about? Her beta HCG is negative. So for her, we would also be thinking about an ovarian tumor. Her pelvic ultrasound shows a 7-centimeter right ovarian mass with solid components, thick septations, and peritoneal fluid. What is the most likely cause of this tumor? So this is most likely an epithelial ovarian carcinoma. Acutely, it can present a shortness of breath, constipation, or obstipation. Obstipation is just a word for inability to pass gas, um, vomiting, and abdominal distension. Subacutely, it can present as a pelvic or abdominal pain, bloating, or early satiety. What would be your tumor marker that you'd be looking for? So you would look for a CA-125. Your management for the epithelial ovarian carcinoma would be an X-lab. Um, so you would be going in, doing surgery, and you would remove uh, any parts of the tumor that you can get, as well as pelvic and abdominal metastasis. Say you have a 22-year-old female who comes in with severe right lower quadrant pain. She's had abdominal pain for a while and is now having some nausea and vomiting. You do a pelvic ultrasound and you see a partially calcified ovarian mass with echogenic bands. You also see decreased Doppler flow to the right ovary. What would you be thinking about? So for the ovarian mass, this is most likely a mature cystic teratoma. It's a benign ovarian germ cell tumor with endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm. Your tell that it's a teratoma is that it's calcified. No other ovarian masses are commonly calcified. Why does she have low Doppler flow to her ovaries? So she has low Doppler flow to her ovaries because the mature cystic teratoma has caused an ovarian torsion. So an ovarian torsion is basically when the ovary twists on itself or on the peritoneum and it loses all its blood flow. A common cause of ovarian torsion is a cystic teratoma, which is why while they are benign tumors, you do want to remove them. So your management would be an ovarian cystectomy or an oophorectomy. Say you have a 35-year-old woman who comes in with pain with intercourse. She has new onset dyspareunia, and she has changes in her libido. She's been having voice deepening, some male pattern balding, and on exam you notice clitoromegaly, or the clitoris protruding from the clitoral hood. What could you be thinking about? So this could also be a different type of tumor. So on ultrasound, you see a 9-centimeter solid adnexal mass. 
So this tumor is a Sertoli-Leydig tumor. It is a tumor that releases increased testosterone. Normally when we learn about these tumors, we learn about them in men. However, these are possible in women and they would present with rapid onset virilization. So voice deepening, male pattern baldness, muscle mass, all the above. And your management would also be surgery with tumor staging. So very quickly, I just want to run through the different tumor markers for these ovarian tumors. The most common is epithelial tumors. Um, so that was our one with the abdominal distension in a middle-aged female. Your tumor marker would be your CA125. The next would be an endodermal sinus tumor. This is really aggressive. It's seen in young children as a friable mass. Um, so this would be an elevated AFP. One of the earlier ones we talked about was choriocarcinoma. So your marker was a beta HCG. You can also have an embryonal carcinoma. It's super, super rare, um, but it can also present as precocious puberty, and its marker is also beta-HCG or AFP. You also have a dysgerminoma, so that's seen in adolescence as sheets of uniform fried egg cells with an LDH marker. And lastly, you have the granulosa cell tumor, which was our example of precocious puberty. It's most commonly malignant, it also can be in women in their 50s, so it would cause abnormal uterine bleeding. Um, and it shows Carl Exner bodies on histology with a tumor marker of inhibin. So say you have a 40-year-old woman who comes in with bleeding that started yesterday and is soaking through her pads. She has a smoking history, a history of obesity, and on pelvic exam, you see dark red blood in the vaginal vault. You also see a three centimeter friable mass on the ectoservice that's extending laterally and the lesion is actively bleeding. What would you be thinking about in this patient? So with heavy vaginal bleeding and a cervical mass, you wanna have a high suspicion for cervical cancer. So what are some risk factors that we look at for cervical cancer? So a major risk factor for cervical cancer is tobacco use, which this patient had a 20-pack year smoking history. So you do want to keep that in consideration. The other major risk factors is infection with high-risk HPV strains, such as 16 and 18. Similarly, early onset of sexual activity is a risk factor. However, regardless of the time that a patient becomes sexually active, you still only start doing pap smears at age 21, and we do not start HPV testing until age 30. Other risk factors are contraceptive use, immunosuppression. So immunosuppression is a risk factor, which is why we do pap smears more frequently in HIV-positive patients. Another risk factor is low socioeconomic status. So say you have a 55-year-old female who's postmenopausal. She comes in with abnormal uterine bleeding and no history of normal pap smear, normal cervix on exam, and small antiverted uterus and no adenexal masses. You do a pap smear and you see atypical glandular cells. What would be your next best step? So this woman with postmenopausal bleeding, her next best step would be an endometrial biopsy. Regardless of the atypical glandular cells and pap smear, whenever someone over age 
45 has abnormal uterine bleeding, you want to do a endometrial biopsy. However, she also has atypical glandular cells on her pap smear, which is also a sign of endometrial adenocarcinoma. So you would still want to do an endometrial biopsy regardless on her. What could you look for in this patient's history that would be a major risk factor for endometrial carcinoma? So a major risk factor for endometrial carcinoma could be PCOS because patients with PCOS have anovulatory cycles. Other risk factors are hormone replacement therapy or granulosa cell tumors, especially due to the unopposed excess estrogen. Would endometriosis be a risk factor for endometrial cancer? No, it is not. So endometriosis is not due to unopposed estrogen. Endometriosis is just endometrial implants other places than the endometrium or within the uterus. Therefore, endometrial cancer isn't a risk factor because it's not unopposed excess estrogen. Other things you want to look out for with abnormal uterine bleeding or postmenopausal bleeding is you also want to look at people with Lynch syndrome. So hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer also increases your risk for endometrial cancer. You also want to screen these women with a pelvic ultrasound and look for a thickened endometrial stripe. So a thickened endometrial stripe would be about 8 millimeters. Say you had a 65-year-old female who comes in with malodorous discharge. She has a history of exposure to DES in utero that resulted in infertility. She's a smoker. She smoked for the last 40 years. Uh, she drinks maybe a couple glasses of wine. She has a normal BMI. You do her pelvic exam and you see a 3-centimeter ulcerated lesion on the vaginal wall and the cervix appears normal. She has a two millimeter endometrial stripe. What would you be thinking about in this woman? So this woman appears to have vaginal cancer. Vaginal cancer has several risk factors. So say you did the biopsy and this woman had squamous cell carcinoma. What in her history would point towards squamous cell? So for squamous cell, you would want to look at her tobacco use. Some of you may have been thinking the DES exposure. However, the DES exposure actually only increases your risk for clear cell adenocarcinoma. So your risk factors for squamous cell carcinoma, the more common vaginal cancer, is an age over 60, HPV infection, and tobacco use. These people commonly have vaginal bleeding, malodorous discharge, or an irregular vaginal lesion. You can diagnose it with a vaginal biopsy, as well as doing surgery and chemoradiation. They can also have other symptoms of metastatic disease, such as pelvic pain, hematuria, bulk symptoms, such as constipation. Say you have a four-year-old girl, and she comes in because her mother was concerned of a grape-like mass protruding her, um, her vagina. What would you be thinking about in her? So this patient likely has sarcoma botryoides. Um, this is a cancer in kids. So what type of variant is sarcoma botryoides? What kind of cells would you look at for? 
So this is an embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma. That's a pretty high yield fact to know. It presents as clear grape-like polypoid mass emerging from the vagina. On histology, it has spindle-shaped cells, and it's desmin-positive. So those are good facts to know. This is kind of a high-yield fun fact to know for the sarcoma botryoides, but, you know, it's not as common in, in real life. <laughs> Say you have a 65-year-old female who comes with severe vulvar itching and burning. She's not sexually active. She's postmenopausal. Um, on physical exam, you see thin, dry, white, plaque-like vulvar skin and a loss of your labia. The clitoral hood is retracted, and you can see active excoriations. What would you be thinking about in this woman? So this woman most likely has vulvar lichen sclerosis. However, she is at risk for vulvar carcinoma. So lichen sclerosis is pale, thin tissue and perianal thickening with fissuring. Um, there's commonly excoriations that are visible. Some risk factors would be women who are postmenopausal or women with autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes. So they commonly present with vulvar itching and burning. However, it is important to do a vulvar punch biopsy to rule out vulvar cancer because you don't want to treat somebody with steroids and then find out that they actually had an underlying cancer. So especially in postmenopausal women, you do want to get that biopsy. Say you have a 45-year-old female who comes in for orange-colored fluid from her right nipple that she noticed on a breast exam last week. She does have a history of schizophrenia on risperidone. Um, she takes Tylenol for some headaches. Uh, she has no masses, no lymphadenopathy, just unilateral orange breast discharge. What would you be thinking about? So this woman most likely has an introductal papilloma. Um, it's a benign papillary tumor from the breast duct lining. However, what would be important to do in her workup? So it would still be really important to get a mammogram uh, and an ultrasound. You could also do a biopsy and excision, just because while she does have unilateral bloody nipple discharge um, and introductal papillomas are benign papillary tumors, you do still want to rule out any breast cancer. So an introductal papilloma is just the tumor from the breast duct lining. It's benign. It can have brown, red, pink, discharge from a single duct. It can be serosanguinous. What should have been on your radar with her history of schizophrenia? So anyone with a history of schizophrenia, you do want to rule out elevated prolactin. Um, this can lead to galactorrhea or milk discharge from the nipples. However, this is unilateral um, and it doesn't have that milky consistency that you would be worrying about a prolactinoma. So you do want to do imaging studies followed up by a biopsy and an excision. So say you have a 35-year-old female. She's coming in with a fixed mass that she palpated under her upper outer quadrant of her breast. Um, she has a history of a car accident six months ago. She gets a mammogram that shows a 3x3 speculated mass with calcifications. 
and the core biopsy shows fat globules. What would you tell her? So she most likely has fat necrosis from trauma, so she would just need some reassurance and routine follow-up. Signs of fat necrosis is after trauma or if she had breast surgery. It's a firm, irregular mass with ecchymosis, skin, or nipple retraction, um, and you just want to follow up. It's completely benign. Say you had a 25-year-old female came in the office and she also had a painful breast lump. She has a mobile mass on her left breast and a ultrasound shows a well-circumscribed anechoic structure with no Doppler enhancement, no solid components. You do a needle aspiration and there's clear fluid. What would you be thinking about in this patient? So she most likely just has a benign breast cyst. Um, breast cysts, you do want to manage simple breast cysts. You can do an FNA or fine needle aspiration. Most of the time, if they have clear fluid, you just do some routine management. However, if the fluid does reaccumulate, you do want to do a biopsy. But in the most cases, people have benign breast cysts all the time. Another version of this is people also have fibrocystic change, so they'll have multiple diffuse cystic masses um, that are especially tender during their premenstrual cycle. So you want to kind of watch out for those, but these are also completely benign. Say you had a similar woman who came in, and she had a solid mass. She's 24 years old. Um, she palpated it on self-exam, and it's tender. They do the ultrasound, and it's solid what would this most likely be? So this is most likely a fibroadenoma. It's a solitary, firm, well-circumscribed mobile mass. Um, it can be tender as well around your menstrual cycle. You most likely wouldn't find any lymphadenopathy. If they're under 30 years old, how would you work this up? So the best way to work this up if they're less than 30 would just be with an ultrasound. Uh, women's breasts are very dense under the age of 30, making mammogram not very ideal. So you would just follow this up with ultrasounds uh, and make sure it's not growing. Say you have a 35-year-old mom who comes in with left breast swelling and pain. Um, she did recently stop breastfeeding. Um, she's had worsening symptoms. On exam, her left breast is warm, erythematous, and there's some thickening, skin dimpling, what would you be concerned about? So for her, you'd be concerned about inflammatory breast carcinoma. Um, another word of this is peau de orange. Sorry, French is definitely not my language. Um, you look for edema, erythema, um, and large lymph nodes. Sometimes if a mom has recently been breastfeeding, you would treat this as mastitis. And if it doesn't resolve with antibiotics, then you would go ahead and do a workup for breast cancer. So the first line antibiotic for if this was mastitis would be uh, nafacillin or oxafacillin. So you would treat it with a penicillin. Um, however, if it doesn't resolve, you do want to work them up with a mammogram um, and work them up for inflammatory breast carcinoma. Say you have a 45-year-old female recently diagnosed with breast cancer. 
She had a mobile mass on her upper outer quadrant with some lymph nodes, and she was found on genetic testing to be HER2 positive. What medication would be good for her? So the targeted therapy for HER2 positive breast cancer is trastuzumab. And what study do patients need before they're started on trastuzumab? So before starting patients on trastuzumab, you do want to do a baseline echocardiogram. Um, an echo will kind of give you a baseline because trastuzumab can cause a decrease in your ejection fraction and heart failure. So they do want to follow up on cardiotoxicity side effects. So last case, you have a 14-year-old male, and he comes in with a small lump that he felt under his right nipple. He does have a family history of breast cancer. Um, you find a tender, glandular, subareolar breast tissue mass. He's Tanner stage 3. He has normal testicles. What would you think this might be? So while breast cancer is very possible in males, this is most likely pubertal gynecomastia. So due to the imbalance of estrogen and androgens during mid-puberty, Tanner stages three to four, it's very normal to have small, firm, unilateral or bilateral subareolar masses. Um, you wanna watch out and make sure they have no nipple discharge, no lymphadenopathy, no systemic illness. However, if you do find a male with a strong family history of breast cancer, say BRCA, positive gene mutations in their family, and they're usually a little bit older, maybe in their 20s or 30s, then you might want to consider working them up for breast cancer. So if you had the same presentation in a 45-year-old male, what would be your next best step? So your next best step in this case would be to do a mammogram, a similar workup just as you would do for females. Uh, most commonly, men who do get breast cancer are patients with a family history of BRCA-positive mutations. So thanks for listening. I hope that this was helpful. Stay tuned for some more OB-GYN and reproductive topics soon. And please leave a comment if there's any topic you specifically do want to hear about, OB-GYN or any other subject. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Any questions, comments, or concerns, you can visit the website of spoonfulofsugar.org. Take care and happy studying.